This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Now then, if you're one of our listeners who consumes a podcast as fast as we release them, you'll have been hearing a lot from The Dudes this week in our series of man specials ahead of International Men's Day on November the 19th. If you've not caught them yet, please do have a listen, because it turns out the men have quite a lot of good stuff to say. I've chatted to author, mental health advocate and all-around top human Matt Haig. Jen's caught up with Dr. Jacob Whittacombe Vigors. He's from the Fight for Peace London Academy, where they use boxing and martial arts to help support young people who are in communities affected by crime and violence. And Jen's also had an atta with performer and campaigner Jordan Stevens, aka Jordan Rizzle Stevens of Rizzle Kicks, about the dangers of toxic masculinity. And our Hannah went to Westminster to talk to Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth about a topic very close to her heart. They chat about Britain's culture of booze and what it's like growing up the child of an alcoholic. Still to come, if you're listening to this on Sunday, I chat to Luke Hart, domestic violence campaigner and co-author of Operation Lighthouse with his brother Ryan, which tells the story of how his mum Claire and sister Charlotte were murdered by their father. We've also had this month's Outside the Box, within which we chat Daredevil, Informer, House of Cards, HBO's new Intimacy Coordinator, and all of that is but nothing to Hannah's giddy kippery about a certain film that is now shooting. Talking of films, Hannah also got on the blower to filmmaker Ruth Beckerman about her documentary The Voldheim Waltz, which examines how Austria came to elect Kurt Voldheim, a former Nazi, to the role of president during the 1980s. And then there's this slice of ear pie, in which we chat to historian Fern Riddell, author of The Victorian Guide to Sex, and also Death in Ten Minutes, Kitty Marion, activist, arsonist, suffragette, both of which I've read and are smashing. Fern, sorry, Dr Fern, tells us all about the joys and importance of being a hashtag immodest woman, what the Victorians can teach us about sex, spoiler, it is quite a lot, and also about Kitty Marion, music hall actress, fierce woman, suffragette, and Fern's original Me Too moment. We also discover that Jen does not find scary raves a turn-on. Who knew? Well, Jen, clearly. Still, that's a surprise birthday plans as ruined as that old Egyptian cheese. Hello, we're joined by historian Dr Fern Riddell, whose specialist subjects include sex, suffrage, the Victorians, the Edwardians, and starting a kick-ass hashtag... Fern, you delightfully immodest woman. Thanks loads for being here. Thank you very much for asking me. Shall we start there then? Yeah, we can start there. We can start with immodest women if you want to start with immodest women because I'm really proud of it. It's something that 
I think there was a real need for that none of us really realised we needed. I think as women, we were so used to kind of letting that thing just eat away at you and be silent that you just suffer through and you just get on with. Tell us how it started. I love Twitter. Twitter is one of my favourite places to be. And I've kind of, um, as an academic, it gives us the ability to talk to people because most of the time we just sit in the dark (laughs) in archives, not really kind of having any sort of sense of communication with people. And it gives you a, a world of people who are just as weird as you are that you can kind of form connections to. And so we all talk, we all chat, we all get cross about things like everyone does on Twitter. And one of the things that kicked us all off a couple of months ago was the decision of a newspaper in the States to stop using doctor in its articles. So whenever it talked to a chemist or an economist or, you know, an expert of any type who wasn't a medical doctor, they would just refer to them as Mr. or Mrs which seemed stupid to me because I work mostly in the press, I work mostly in the media, and if I'm talking to you, it's because you want my expertise. I think we have a real issue, especially in the UK, especially in the US at the moment, where we're erasing how important it is to know that the person you're talking to actually is an expert and they're not just some mad person off the street Mm. who's decided they've got an opinion and can tell you what to do with your life we don't need facts anymore fern no none none whatsoever we we just live on a diet of fake news and and whatever you decide you've read in the morning papers as fact that i think is a real issue we need to know who actually has the information and who we can trust because otherwise how are we supposed to make an intelligent or a good decision about our lives So I got very cross about this, as kind of a lot of people were. And I just did an offhand throwaway tweet into the wind, like many of us do, that was sort of, you know, well, I've worked really hard and my PhD represents my authority, my right to have an opinion. And I didn't think anything more of it, but a number of women kind of reacted to this and and agreed with it. And then so did a number of men in terms of reacting. (laughs) And it was really interesting. Because when I'd said it, it wasn't about, as a woman, I should have this right. It was that as an expert, male or female, whoever you are, you should have a right to be known and acknowledged for your expertise. But the backlash that I had from it was all men. And the first thing that happened within kind of a couple of hours was a man slid into my mentions and went, I think that you stating that you are an expert and you have authority is legitimately immodest. Oh dear. Wow. And I was like, what? Are you serious? So I work a lot on sex and sexual culture and how we use language to kind of demonise women and shut women out of public space. So if a woman is in any way sexual or if she talks about sex, which is something that I do as part of my work, she's often painted as someone who's vulgar or something that isn't it shouldn't be in kind of well, it's not very plane. ladylike is no. it it's not very ladylike it's not ladylike but who gives a fuck about being ladylike it's that it's also why why have we decided that that's a thing because by stopping women from talking about sex which women often do women stop other women from talking about sex we use sex as a way to not just men kind of controlling us but as women to erase other women from public discourse so you know a lot of the stuff that's done about love island a lot of the stuff that's done about other women is oh but she's a bit slutty isn't she and it's other women doing that to women which i think is just as dangerous as mm-hmm. when men do it and i get just as cross about um but yeah so all these men sort of st- started sliding in and i did a throwaway tweet again with the hashtag of an immodest woman with a, a bit of a clap back 
because I like that on Twitter. That's kind of a fun thing to do when you get the idiots. And it just snowballed. <laughs> and within kind of 24 hours, I had repetitive strain in my finger from scrolling through <laughs> all these tweets of all these women across the world who suddenly latched onto this and started putting doctor in their handles as kind of a way, all oh, having PhDs, yeah. of as a way to kind of own their own authority. And the the great thing about it and kind of the worst thing about it was all of these women saying, you know, before this point, I always felt ashamed. I always felt as if putting my doctorate out there, acknowledging that I had authority, was something that put me at risk. And that's fascinating that we can be educated now because you know a hundred years ago I wouldn't be allowed to have my PhD women weren't really allowed to graduate we were allowed to go to university Mm -hmm. we're allowed to learn but we weren't allowed to have our authority and use it in the public domain you're allowed to take part you're just not allowed to win (laughs) yeah taking part that counts that's what matters and you just sort of sit there going this is bullshit like we are here a hundred years later, a hundred years after getting the vote, a hundred years after we are supposed to be equal in the law and in the eyes of society. And here I am simply saying, in a professional setting, my title is this. And if you are interviewing me, you will use it. It was mad. It was ridiculous. This huge backlash. It's not that I didn't believe in the gender war before that, but I hadn't experienced it myself. And I'd been very much one of those kind of women who writes about sex and sort of feminists who's like, well, there's both sides and not all men are bad. And then you experience a massive gender backlash yeah. and you're like, no, there's something really rotten in like the state of Denmark here. Yep. What is wrong with you guys? I think it revealed something else quite interesting, that debate as well, because I think that I saw a lot of people responding to people saying, oh, you know, I've got three PhDs and I don't use doctor. Some of them were women. Or I don't insist that people call me doctor. But I think as well, there's a a racial element to it and there's a class element to it. Because it's if you've worked really hard for it and it was something you were led to believe was beyond your capabilities to get that far and you get that far, I think you're entitled to demand the postman calls you doctor if you want to do it. I don't see it as a thing that someone is saying they are better than me. I'm just seeing it as a thing that indicates they know more about the subject than I do. And that's fair enough. Specsavers call me captain. I don't even <laughs> ask them to. I once joined the um, National Trust. I didn't join them. I was signing up to their press office details. And they offer you the most staggering level of options of what you can be called at the start. And I think I'm there as Lieutenant Wing Commander <laughs> Dunleavy because I was like, holy shit. There's, yeah. I, I haven't got the time to scroll down all of these things that they're offering you. I'd have taken anything. Yeah. When I worked at Harrogate Theatre, we had to be on the system because you would book tickets for other people coming in, particularly as press. And we got to choose whatever title we wanted, and I think I was Her Royal Highness. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the, like the thing with the modest women, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't boasting. It's not like wanting to be called Big Schlong John. Yeah. It's <laughs> Which men would be really happy with. Yeah, totally. I think I know him. <laughs> You've got a pained look in your eyes. <laughs> but did you expect it to take off? No. No, I didn't. I, I do a lot of kind of, of throwaway tweets. It's what Twitter's for. You're did chatty you... and fighty on Twitter. <laughs> I respect that. <laughs> well, I think this is a way to be. A lot of people don't realise that that's just what you're like in real life as well. <laughs> but I really, I couldn't believe how it snowballed and I couldn't believe how many women felt that they needed something like that to be able Permission. To, yeah, they needed permission. Because I... I don't know if it's just how I grew up, but permission isn't 
part of it's pointless that you you don't you you do it first and then you ask forgiveness rather than asking for permission <laughs> and i i think i was very lucky in that but you know i i was the first in my family to go to uni um straight from school and having a phd always felt like something that i worked so hard for and i was so proud to have knowing that it made me an expert in my tiny little world <laughs> Like, I'm not going to, you know, when I'm ordering fish and chips and going, that's Dr. Fern. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's, it I is... I love it's Dr. First name as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Dr. Fern. It's Dr. Fern. Yeah, I think I, got, I get quite... If people call me Dr. Adele, then I I need to be in a suit. <laughs> because we cause we all have this image of what authority is and what, what an academic is and what kind of what you should be to have it that doesn't quite match, I think, with the reality of... Of what uh, what an academic is, or someone who is an expert, in that we we are all actually normal people. Oh no, some of them do just live in Tweed, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But but there is this. But it's this, a choice rather than yeah. a uniform, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, no, it's definitely a choice. <laughs> you see the ones that make it. There's this huge gap in our society between understanding that an expert is someone who has given their life over and their career over to knowing something about a thing. And whether or not that thing is going to impact on your life, if they're talking about it, they're the ones who know the answers. Mm. And we've lost that in, in every aspect of our of our culture, it feels, at the moment. And I think that's really dangerous. Well, that was good. Was it, was it, was Gove, it Gove wasn't it? that yeah. said that people are bored of listening yeah. to experts? What I thought was interesting as well is one of the people in the that original style sheet amendment, one of the people that could remain to be called doctor was doctors of theology so like reverence could still be called doctor so you so you could be like called doctor, doctor right, if you're fiction. a doctor of jesus right <laughs> but you couldn't be called doctor if you were uh, a doctor of what are you a doctor m- of? microbiology or whatever well me yeah. i so i'm a doctor of history yes it's one of the earliest forms of doctorate that we have in existence from the dawn of time so actually, old school. Yeah. Quite literally. Literally yeah. old school. But the people that we call doctors, which are doctors of medicine, is actually only an honorary, which no one knows. No one, like, part of our society, we think that that's the, those are the official real yeah. doctors. Oh, no, no. Hold the it's phone. Actually, Come actually on, say that again. It's only so, an honorary. It's an honorary confirmation. And yet our society sort of views it as the gold standard of doctor. And then when they're surgeons, they go back to being Mr. 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 or yeah. Mrs. Yeah. Or Miss. Yes. Because that one is a Miss. Yeah. 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 So the actual real doctors are doctors of the humanities, like me and and like anyone who's sort of studying the past and studying science or anything like that. We we had it first. Fucking snake oil sellers, yeah. <laughs> GPs sneaking in, <laughs> stealing doctorates, fixing our broken bones. But I think that was the <laughs> thing that I up. I kept getting from you. Either had the trolls, or then you had all these people going. But you're not a real doctor, are you? Well, and I was just sitting there going, oh, Yeah, is that well actually? And you don't want to be the person who says well actually. Yeah, yeah you yeah. do. <laughs> Everyone wants to be that person. Come on. Well, I sort of I get a lot of well actuallys and you're like, well, actually, actually. Yeah. <laughs> double actually. Yeah, double is it well is it double well or is it a double actually? Where do you like Let's go both. Yeah. Right. Put it all out there. <laughs> double actually. Well actually, well actually. If we're talking about history and trolls, can I ask you a question about history's largest troll? Uh which one? Uh, Dr. David Stark. <laughs> Oh. He said some interesting things the other day, didn't he? He about, always says interesting yeah, things. Yeah, about how basically he can't get on telly anymore because mm. there's too many ugly women. 
Yes, uh, the man who has not stopped yeah. making television series for yeah. all of the oh. time, who has been on television since I was an undergrad and before. Um, but I think we can all agree he's an absolute looker. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the kind of the, the weird things about history at the moment, and I so I do a lot of history documentaries, and I love them. I love working in telly. It's great. It's a good place. Interesting things I've heard back from commissioners. We love your idea about that thing of women's history, but we need a man to present it. Thanks, History Channel. Uh, well, you can't uh, be taken seriously as a historian. Oh, no. David oh, Stalky. Uh, yeah, Fern, you're great. We love what you're doing. When do you get your PhD? Because until you've got your PhD, you can't present. Would you like to list any of the men who now are regularly on television who do have a PhD? It's David Stalky, and that's it. Really? Not even Simon Sharma. Uh, so I can't remember if I have to know Simon. So I can't. So I'm not sure he's on. currently on that much. I haven't seen him do anything. Yeah, since but he's, he's around on America. He's always around. He's around. But, so that's kind of like the old guard there, and that's like the solid. If you're looking at the great guys who I love, but Dan Snow's an enthusiastic. Dan Snow's amateur, an incredibly enthusiastic historian. Yeah. No PhD. Yeah. And neither is Dan Jones. Neither is like neither is Greg Jenner, who are all guys that I I adore and know yeah. and work and like work with. But when you look then at the same generation of historians, Susanna Lipscomb, Nina Ramirez, Lucy Worsley, Kate Williams, every single one of those women, PhD, because we cannot let women speak and give them authority unless they've got the letters. Because you have to be better than a man. Yeah, well, yeah. it's more, we don't trust women. Well, it's But it's like in pretty much every element of society you have to have worked harder you yeah. have to you have to do the job better than a man yeah all right it's jenna sorry to interrupt your listening experience if you like what we do here at standard issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women yeah us we know you can do so by visiting our patreon page www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue and chucking some dollar our way thanks very much Fern, what sparked your interest in the past? What got you into wanting to talk about history and read about history and write about history? Well, having slagged men off, uh, it was my dad <laughs> to, to bring it back to men being great for history. My mum went away for two weeks. She went to do, she was doing science. And my dad got left with, with me when he was, when I was about 13. Dangerous time worrying time and he literally didn't know what to do so he took me to every single castle in Kent <laughs> that there was that there was just in the matter of I think we did I think we did three castles in one day God I bloody love a castle yeah, me yeah. Too. but it just sort of it, I think that kind of experience at sort of 13 and my mum was doing our family history at the same time so I'd sort of come home from school and there would be all these records and all these documents on the floor it just gave me this taste for the past for secrets that are there and that's why that's why I love it is what the past can tell us about today that's so much more important than what we've forgotten and how we misuse the past more than anything. So I work mostly on kind of on sex and on suffragette terrorism. And my work on sex is the stuff that I kind of love the most because everything that we think we know about the Victorians and sex is wrong and everything that they actually were doing and actually were talking about is so much better and so much more kind of better advice and understanding than than we have in our modern sexual culture and I think that's really important. They were having a lovely old time, weren't they? Were they were having the best time. Mm-hmm. Victorians knew what the female orgasm was. They thought it was the only way you got pregnant. So every single sex guide in the 19th century is geared towards female pleasure, which is amazing. 
That is amazing. Although Victoria herself was well into sex, wasn't she? Yep, absolutely. She had a lot of kids. She had a lot of kids. Um, they supposedly had, Kate Williams, I think, has talked about that she had a secret little lock underneath the, the bedroom table to be able to lock the bedroom door from from just being in bed to lock anyone else out for her and Albert, which I always like. And her kind of, her her diary entry for her wedding night is really beautiful where she's just kind of like, oh, I got really drunk and I had a headache and then we went to bed and he took my clothes off and, oh, my God, it was the most amazing thing <laughs> that I've ever experienced in my life. And you're just like, yes, Vic, good for you. <laughs> and you wrote a book, The Victorian Guide to Sex. I did, So yes. what can we learn from the Victorians? A number of, oh, my God, so many things. Firstly, female pleasure is paramount. Yes, hello, boys, it really is. Two, the problem we have today is that our sexual culture has moved from being something that was shared and about shared pleasure to something that is purely about the individual. So it's what you can get out of that experience rather than what your partner can get. And when you're looking at the past, that is everything that the Victorians thought mattered was that sex should be pleasurable, it should be fun, it should be shared. And that was the kind of the only way that you ended up with beautiful children. And it was this big, they had this kind of big belief that A, a woman only got pregnant if she had an orgasm, and B, that if you wanted beautiful, happy children, you had to be very much in love and your sex had to be the best you'd ever had in your life. That's quite a nice idea, isn't it? It is a nice idea. Pressure, though. Yeah. (laughs) I really like that one. And I, I think kind of the... The way that they looked at sex shows us something that we've forgotten. So actually, not many people know this, but if a woman does have an orgasm, it aids conception. So yeah, so um, Channel 4 put a woman in an MRI scanner about 10 or 15 years ago, and they videoed her (laughs) while she was having an orgasm. And the cervix cervix actually scoops down at the moment of orgasm. It does a kind of like a sucking motion. Have it. Yeah. (laughs) So if there's any sperm in there, then it helps aid, it genuinely helps aid conception. That's a view that we've had since the ancient times. How did we know that as humans before MRI scanners were invented? Is she still in there? (laughs) (laughs) And again. Hopefully not 15 years later. But... It's things like that. We're losing connection with our body. We're losing connection with what pleasure is because we're coming far too reliant on technology, far too reliant on kind of individual need rather than pleasure, which is what matters. I'm going to have to go back to this MRI scanner quickly. Yeah. Was she having sex in the MRI I've scanner? I've actually seen this. Her boyfriend uh, was helping her. It's like a really scary rave in an MRI scanner. So is that not sexy for you, Jen? That would. I don't know. I think it would have put me off my stroke a little bit. What? <laughs> I think. I think I quite like an MRI scanner because it's noise <laughs> and the, the. It's very rhythmic. It, it is very yeah. rhythmic. because she wasn't allowed to move. Obviously. No. So. So. Well, whatever floats your boat, you know. He, 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 did, he did lend a hand. Wow. Why have we? misunderstood the Victorians because what you've just said isn't the the sort of image that is portrayed in pop culture today. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, culture has a massive issue and also we, we, there's this, there's one of the things people often say about the Victorians is that they covered their table legs. That unfortunately is a Victorian joke that someone wrote when they went to America and were like, I've been to America and do you know what the crazy Americans do? There's this girls' school where the woman in charge is so prudish and mad she's covered every leg in the house. And it was this huge kind of book that came back and was like the talk of Victorian London and everyone going, ha ha, silly Americans. 
and then it just got misrepeated like Chinese whispers repeated over and over and over again and all of kind of the nuance and the actual remembrance of history got forgotten and it became simply the Victorians covered their chair legs in the UK and that's completely untrue we weren't covering our chair legs at all at all we were the opposite so that's the first thing is kind of cultural misrepresentation and how our memories of the past change because history is personal memory you know you remember the best things and you remember the worst things you don't tend to remember the middle bits and you don't tend to remember as you get further away from it anything in detail Mm -hmm. and it's the job of someone like me to look not just at what we've said about the Victorians over the last hundred years most of the time which is completely kind of imbibed with the idiocies of the 30s or the 50s or the 60s and whatever they were thinking about sex Mm -hmm. and then looking at what the Victorians themselves actually thought I had this complete revelation when you suddenly go back to what the Victorians thought that you find it's it's much it's much like today they loved sex they thought sex was great they wanted everyone to be able to have sex safely and one of the most important and influential contraceptive guides was actually published by a woman in 1877 and it was an amazing lady called Annie Besant who some people may know from the match girl strike but before she was kind of fighting for women's rights and the match girls she was publishing this contraceptive guide that listed every form of contraception available in Victorian England, said that condoms wouldn't catch on because the rubber was like tyres, which was her only kind of flaw. And then it had a circulation in from the first three weeks of its publication of 125,000. Wow. Yeah, now that's beyond a bestseller list. That's insane. So we can see from moments like that that the Victorians were so fixated on sex and, and thought it was brilliant and amazing and Fantastic, and we've completely kind of forgotten that and erased it, which is a shame. We've made it a commodity, I suppose. Mm. Well, yeah, I guess maybe we have made it a commodity, but we've made it something that is more about what you want rather than something that is shared between people. Yeah. And that's a real issue. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Let's talk about your next book. It involves a bold use of a double colon. I'm just going to put that out there, first of all. It is. They loved a bit of that, the Victorians. <laughs> Death in 10 minutes, colon. Kitty Marion, colon. Activist, arsonist, suffragette. Yeah. So tell us a bit about Kitty Marion. Daring, daring colon use there. Kitty is an amazing woman. I was working in the Museum of London Archive on Women and Music Hall and the Victorians, which I kind of really is where I'm really happy and I really love. And there's an amazing archivist there and curator called Beverly Cook. And Bev kind of came up to me one day and was like, oh, I've got this autobiography. It's never been published. No one's ever looked at it. And I think you might really like it. It's on a woman who was in the musicals and she talks about kind of how awful life was. And she was also a suffragette. And I was kind of in my mid-twenties at that point and uh, naive and innocent and a real millennial. And went, oh, I'm not a suffragette. Oh, my God. Like, you know, the people I've been taught about since I was in school who don't really seem interesting to me and whose motivations no one really understands anymore because we don't talk about our history. 
and I was like okay give me give me this I'll, I'll, I'll take what I can from it and I'll just kind of gloss over the marching part and Bev brought it out and stuck it in front of me and I realised within five pages that A I knew nothing and B there was a history here that we are never taught in schools and that history that reality which is a nationwide arson bombing campaign carried out by women in their 40s in the fight and the the push for women's rights was absolutely incredible and cliches aside it blew my fucking mind <laughs> that that we had this this story that I'd never been told and uh, I was working on women's history so if I didn't know about it and my friends didn't know about it and my family didn't know about it and other academics didn't know about it then we should we should know about it so kitty was she was a music hall artist she's the original me too for me she's a woman who was an actress who was seriously assaulted and abused in her fight for originally from germany right yeah so she arrived she was a german child immigrant and she kind of fled an abusive dad arrived here at the age of 15 started living with her aunt and was kind of taking care of the kids and thought well this is a crock of shit i, I want more from my life um and was determined to kind of go on the stage and because she believed you could be an actress and be respectable and she didn't think that anyone had a right to tell her otherwise which is quite refreshing for a Victorian woman at that yeah. point and so she did go on the stage at 19 she was beautiful, she had this huge shock of red hair and her picture's on the front of the book and you can kind of see she's, she's stunning and her first job uh, she went to an agent for and was told to be able to sign the contract she needed to come back the next day after five yeah, now to everyone in this room, we're mm. all going, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a warning sign. Kitty was 19, naive, she'd never really been out of home, so of course she did. She went back to sign her contract at 5pm on the dot, and the first thing that happened is she was assaulted and knocked unconscious. And she staggers out, walks onto Waterloo Bridge, looks down at the water and realises that she's faced with a choice. Either she gives up on her dreams completely, or she fights back and she tries to change her industry for the better and remains in it and she does that for the next 20 years she's an actress who faces multiple assaults in music halls from managers from agents from men who think they have a right to her body just because she's on the stage just because she's a woman in public view after 20 years of fighting by that point in her 40s she's had enough she's really tired she's thinking about giving up and the suffragettes appear and it's kind of this incredible moment where much like has happened with me too Suddenly, there is this organisation and this movement that so many women can be part of because it's, it represents a universal experience that's very individual but understands there are things that unite all of us as women. The suffragettes, which is the term that only applies to the Women's Social and Political Union, which is led by the Pankhursts, and our history's kind of got that quite muddled, so we think suffragettes is everyone in the women's movement at this time, and it's not, it's just this group of women. The suffragettes have the motto of deeds, not words. Now, we've always kind of understood that to be kind of oh what would you what do you think it what, what before this year what did you think it was deeds not words yeah. throw yourself under the king's horse yeah. hunger yeah. strikes yeah yeah, yeah burn, some, burn some post boxes yeah maybe throw a few stones chain yourself to a railing yeah 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 that's that's kind of it deeds not words in all reality means bombing mp's houses 
It means burning down piers, it means bombing churches, it means leaving bombs in St Paul's, outside banks, in post offices. A bomb that was large enough to the, central, to the South London post office to blow up the entire building and kill all 200 people within it. What? Yeah. Wow. These bombs are huge, and they are hundreds and hundreds of attacks. Bombs on commuter trains, bombs coming out um, from Waterloo Station on the on the Kingston line, in one direction and on the other direction at the same time. So the scale of attack and the scale of bombings and arson campaign by the suffragettes is the largest terrorist or domestic terror campaign we've ever had in this country. Ever. How successful were they? What was the, I mean, as in how many of them went off? Well, this is the question. What do you term by success? Success is a, is a dangerous word, I think, to use when we're talking about terrorism because it's, it's something that seems to legitimise. Yeah. Very... No one died from a bombs, but many people were badly in, injured by the chemicals that were sent. So um, they often put the chemicals in post boxes and postmen were very badly burned because it was phosphorus mm. which is like a little fragile glass vial full of phosphorus liquid and it smashes on kind of impact and bursts into flame so if you're handling something like that your, your post bag just explodes really and you get very badly burned so that's one thing that happens the bombs we don't have any record of anyone dying which I think is the only reason why the suffragettes have kind of been slowly forgotten and that no one there wasn't anything die anyone who died but the only reason why no one died is because we've got a two-year campaign and then the first world war breaks out and the bombs were getting larger and larger and more and more dangerous what about the 200 people sorry I'm confused. it could have killed 200 okay, people it's right. not that 200 people died but it could mm-hmm. have killed all the 200 people there the whole building if, would have just yeah. been flattened if it had gone off but you know this is a different time so <laughs> the slight comedy element of these bombs which we don't really recognise when we're talking about the anarchists who are also bombing or the early IRA and things like that, is that they um, were often on timed devices and before they go off they start to smoke and splutter like something out of a out of a comedy movie. So it was very easy to spot them if they were in a public place. The rest of the time they bombed kind of empty buildings late at night so you would find them in exploded and kind of the the images of the of the aftermath of bomb attacks on houses or on kind of huge kind of um racecourse pavilions is that they're just decimated afterwards and there's some pictures in death in 10 minutes of the aftermath of one of kitty's attacks which is on the home of an mp and his house inside is this kind of big stately home and it's just gutted this now that that story rings a bell with me. Did they identify her because she'd left like a hair clip at the? So that's Lloyd George's. That's Lloyd George's house, right? And that's Emily Wilding Davidson. Okay, who's responsible for that, but no one ever talks about it because uh, Sylvia Pankhurst outs her as the person behind the Lord George bombing, and um, the poli- the newspapers cover it as hat pin clue. And that's all that they ever know about it until Sylvia Pankhurst in her uh, autobiography is like, that was Emily Wilding Davidson. But by that point, Emily's already died. Okay. So, it, so it's not kind of left behind. There was actually a terror cell, though, wasn't there? Was it They're Christabel Pankhurst had the young hot bloods? That, so the young hot bloods is the favourite thing that came to light in my research, which no one has ever looked at in detail before. So it's the first time that you'll really find any proper information about them is in Death in 10 Minutes. The Young Hotbloods were a group of very young women that Christabel Pankhurst seems to have set up. Because she... <laughs> one of the things that I have with how we write about suffrage, how we talk about suffrage, is the Pankhursts are God. 
And Christabel Pankhurst left the country at the beginning of 1912. She didn't come back until the First World War broke out. And from Paris, she orchestrated this entire campaign. And for me, the people who are actually interesting are the women who actually carried it out, who actually put their lives on the line. So Christabel Pankhurst and Annie Kenny are kind of from Paris, organised an entire group of women who went across the country, and Kitty was one of them, committing this arsenal bombing campaign that goes into the hundreds. And there are so many women involved in this, we haven't been able to identify them all yet, because this history hasn't been done. It hasn't been researched. This is the first time that we're gonna, you're going to see or read anything like this is in, is in this book. It's all brand new. Why has it been sanitised? It was sanitised in the 1930s, starting to be sanitised, because the, su- the remaining suffragettes were very worried about anyone facing kind of criminal prosecution from the arson and bombing campaign. And also, there was a desire by a lot of the suffragists, so kind of the Mercant Fawcett side of things, who had never agreed with the violence and had always thought it very bad, to kind of push it under the rug and forget about it and erase those women and those voices from the past. Now, historians can only really go on records that are left for them. So it has taken this long for historians like me to start looking at it. And one of the first things that happened when I started looking at it is that the old guard of feminist historians got very upset because they think that exploring this history denigrates the memory of the suffragettes. Yeah, I've seen people taking umbrage with your use of the word terrorist. Yeah, well, the thing is, you have to understand how they saw it at the time. When Christabel Pankhurst is quoted as saying, if men use bombs as weapons of war, why shouldn't women? When Emmeline Pankhurst says, very states very clearly in her own memoir of the time, the whole reason why we were doing the arson and bombing campaign is because we wanted to terrorise the public. And the newspapers themselves, I'm the first person to identify the newspapers using the headlines at the time of suffragette terrorism. This is simply historical fact. The fact that there are a group of historians who want to downplay that, hide it, erase it, or pretend it didn't happen causes us far more problems because these women were fighting for our rights at a time when they had none. And to sanitise their actions because it's uncomfortable to us does them a huge disservice and also takes away why we have the rights we have today and we should know our history in totality. Do you think there is a worry that this is a group of people who are sort of lauded by, well, possibly not everyone, but they are lauded by feminists, by women, as, you know, people who got us the vote, whatever. Do you think there's a worry that in the world we live in, the current climate, that to celebrate that perhaps gives the wrong message? I think that history is not supposed to make you comfortable and we have to understand it in its totality we have to understand it in total we have to understand the motivations the flaws the realities of the lives of the people who gave us the votes and the rights we have today we have to understand that because otherwise we're just being lied to and our history can be corrupted and it can be used against us if we don't understand it in detail And in truth, that's the most important thing to me, is that we understand where we came from and our leaders are celebrated and understood as flawed beings as much as anything else. There seems to be a definite parallel with the way that people talk about Nelson Mandela because Nelson Mandela, to all extents and purposes, 
is the man that you will most hear the expression, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Because people don't like the idea that they're calling him essentially a criminal when they believe that what he was trying to achieve was the right thing. So it's that, it's the the parallel or the paradox between what's legal and what's correct. Yeah, massively. And I think also you have to kind of remember at the time they had no rights, they had no vote, they had no voice in, in public, they had no voice in politics. They didn't have the opportunity to be seen as equal individuals. If you leave a bomb in our society today, that is a horrifying act because you do have those rights. You do have the opportunity to speak, to be heard politically, to have to have your thoughts and actions represented in in law. And that's where I think the, the, the difference between modern day terrorism and the terrorism of the past, the line kind of can be drawn sometimes. They were really candid about it as well. Yeah, and that's what that, I think that's what's so frustrating for me. In I've got so many incredible voices that are in the book, not just Kitty who left her own story of what it was like to carry out that campaign and how much she struggled with it, but people like Mary Richardson who also did the same, Sylvia Pankhurst, you know, everyone else. They're all there all these women speaking from the past and we've never listened to them before why why is that why have we why are we so happy to put someone's name on a t-shirt but not actually care about what they actually said because you sometimes have to then face the inconvenient things about their life which is you know do you want to know that that i mean one of my, my i mean we talk about this a lot completely almost all my life obsessed by eleanor roosevelt a woman who actually, to all extents and purposes, did very little for feminism, did so much for women individually and for people of colour and for lots of lots of people that you can't help but think that she must have been a feminist. But as such, she wasn't really. She did. She she was not. She did not campaign for for the right to vote, which is phenomenal. But I mean, I justify it in my brain by saying she was busy campaigning for a lot of other important stuff at the same time. But. People are problematic. They definitely yeah. have those those things about them. I mean, I won't have anyone say a bad word about her, but, <laughs> but, but there you go. And what I have to say about this story that really gives me hope is that she wrote that book and no one had read it until you picked it up and read it, which means that if, if all, all of us could write our lives down and then who knows who's going to find it in a dusty cupboard yeah. in many, many years to come. I'm looking forward to someone finding Hannah Dunleavy, people are problematic. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that that's going to be a the good find. The best people are problematic. The best people yeah. are problematic. But I think, it, you know, I think it's that. We, why have we lost this ability? In our, it seems very much a modern society thing. Why aren't people allowed to be complicated? Oh, can I, can I say something then about Stephen Hawking? Yeah. Okay. So I live in Cambridge and I worked at a paper for Cambridge and I know lots of people who've encountered, met through work for whatever purposes... Stephen Hawking and have reported things about him you know that's like oh I thought he was a bit this or I thought he was a bit that and and yet there was something about Stephen Hawking that we were supposed to buy this image that the man was perfect and I think that is boring what made him interesting was that he clearly was a flawed individual but whenever he's talked about it's in this hallmark kind of the way that we talk about the Queen like an official way that you can't be seen to criticise them. And I think that's that's dull. That's boring. OK, it was a remarkable achievement that he achieved what he did ac- academically and that he achieved what he did 
given like his life limitations. But to pretend that he never did anything wrong or that he couldn't be a bit of a dick some days is an utterly ridiculous way to be. But that's that's how people seem to want their heroes perfect we like now. like it all pasteurised, don't we? Yeah. It's like the best cheese is the cheese that's been allowed to do its own thing. Yeah. I so, think that's a great can, analogy. You, you can't eat the old Egyptian cheese, though, which is disappointing. No, no it will kill you. It will kill yeah. you because that's what Egyptians do and that's what the curses do from the tombs. Shit. <laughs> Hot tip there. Hot tip. I don't know. Don't when there's no that, cheese, when Brexit <laughs> happens, you know, oh. maybe I'll be desperate. Fern, Kitty is out now. Yes, she is. Death in 10 Minutes is out now as is Victorian's Guide to Sex which obviously they don't go away again so they're both out now are you working on anything else? So I have another book coming out with Hodder that is going to look at women and sex and the universe and why we're in the state we're in Okay. Um, that, that I'm currently working on at the moment and that's all I can say about it because it's doing my head in um, <laughs> but other than that Kitty has been optioned and so we're hoping to see that come to a screen near you very soon amazing congratulations oh, as you. a documentary or as a drama as a drama Wow. So I work, I work a lot in drama and it's one of the places I'm happiest. I think it's where we can put history that really gets excited. So I used to, I was the series consultant for um, the last three series of a fantastic show called Ripper Street. Okay. Where we, we pushed women's history. You will never see an hour of drama that has a Victorian woman promoting birth control out of her clinic in the East End, all based in fact except in something like Ripper, which is one of the things that we got to do. So I, I love being able to do that. But, um, yeah, so that's that's currently... We've had, we're having some very exciting discussions. That's amazing. Thanks very much for coming to chat to us. Thanks for having me. Any time. Standard Issue for All Women.